I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Like it sounds so simple. They had no idea. But now the data speaks. I find this not only refreshing, but but at some level astounding. Nature. Hello and welcome to the Nature Podcast. This week we're finding out how a quantum trick could help measure even fainter gravitational waves. Plus, we're looking at an early sign of autism and taking steps to assess exercise. This is the Nature Podcast for July the 13th, 2017. I'm Shamini Bundell. And I'm Adam Levy. In 2015, scientists detected gravitational waves for the first time. Tiny ripples in space-time caused by the violent collision of two massive black holes. Since then, they've seen two more similar collisions. But they want to see even fainter events, even further away. To do that, they need to navigate limits imposed by the fuzzy world of quantum mechanics. Reporter Lizzie Gibney investigates. When massive black holes collide billions of light years away, they emit gravitational waves, tiny ripples in space-time. Remarkably, we can see these on Earth in the way that these waves subtly shrink and stretch space-time as they pass by. Scientists at LIGO the US-based Advanced Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory, pick up these waves. They send laser beams down two four-kilometre tunnels, which bounce back off mirrors at either end. If a passing wave has stretched and squeezed space-time, the distance between the free-moving mirrors changes. To detect these subtle changes, detectors are already sensitive to tiny changes in distance, around one ten-thousandth the width of a proton but they want to get even more sensitive. Nergis Mavalvala, a physicist at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology and a member of the LIGO experiment, explains why. Yeah, so the amplitude of the, of the gravitational wave scales with how far the source is. So if you can make a more sensitive detector, you can actually see the same kind of source to greater distances, which is really important as we try to map out what's out there in the sky at greater and greater distances. In, in astronomy, one of the most magnificent things about distance is the farther you look out, the farther back in time you're looking. So it also tells us about the history of the universe and how these systems 
uh, you know, evolved. And so there's a lot of excitement to be able to look farther out, which means you need more sensitive detectors. And that's what we're trying to do. Engineers already protect the equipment from noise that could mask or emulate a passing wave. But eventually, they hit a pretty solid roadblock, a fundamental limit on how accurate measurements can be, imposed by quantum mechanics. Quantum noise comes from the fact that light is quantized. We know that light comes in packets called photons. And what we do at the, when we make the measurement is we're counting the number of photons. And so that process of counting the number of photons has quantum uncertainty on it. And that's, in the end, the fundamental limit to the sensitivity of the detectors that we've built so far. The problem is that as soon as you try to measure something on the quantum scale, the measurement itself introduces an uncertainty. This is because to figure out how the passing waves affect space-time, the researchers measure a distance between the mirrors with photons. But each time the photon hits the mirror, it nudges it. It gives it a little kick of momentum, which slightly changes that distance. And as the photons fluctuate in number, so does this disturbance, a phenomenon known as back action. Nergis and her colleagues have been studying for decades how it might be possible to get around this fundamental fuzziness in LIGO's measurements, and they plan to employ a few tricks in the detector's next upgrade. But a different team, publishing in Nature this week, have devised a new way to measure changes in distance that evades this quantum limit. The idea is to cancel out the effect of the photon's momentum kicks, the back action. They do this by taking measurements from the point of view of a different system, which experiences an equal but opposite effect. To do this, a team led by Eugene Polzik of the Niels Bohr Institute in Copenhagen brought in something unusual, a cloud of atoms. This cloud of atoms is special because it's been artificially primed by the researchers, so that when it's hit by the photon beam, its only option is to switch to a lower, rather than higher, energy state. Imagine the photon is a ball, says Eugene. Throw it at a mirror and it makes the mirror accelerate away. Bizarrely, for the cloud of atoms, it's the opposite. When the ball hits, it's as though the cloud accelerates back towards you, mathematically at least. In principle, this eliminates the back action completely and practically it means that we can improve the sensitivity by as much as we wish. But this is always difficult in real life. There are always imperfections and losses. And for example, in the paper, we demonstrate the reduction of this back action by only 30%. It's early days, but Eugene reckons that using this technique, detectors like LIGO could increase their sensitivity by a factor of two or maybe three. Nergis is also optimistic. You know, the early thinking is that this could be very useful, but we really have to be careful and, and do, you know, do the detailed calculations before we could be sure. If these kinds of schemes uh, could be applied to, gra- you know, to these long kilometer scale gravitational wave detectors, what we would hope for is that they would have improved sensitivity and therefore could see either fainter objects that, that are nearby or see, see you know, farther out into the universe. 
It seems like the technique could prove pretty useful. But for Eugene, it's about more than that. Well, uh, the general curiosity, of course, um, is simply to see how we can fool around, so to say, the quantum mechanical restrictions. What we're trying to do is to demonstrate that the kind of naively and usually assumed limitations of quantum mechanics, they actually can be overcome if you think of this measurement in a special reference frame. That was Eugene Polzik from the Niels Bohr Institute in Copenhagen. You also heard from Nergis Mavalvala from MIT. Thank you to reporter Lizzie Gibney for explaining the quantum fuzziness in as unfuzzy a way as possible. You can read her news story on the study online at nature.com forward slash news, where you'll also find a link to Eugene's research paper. Stay tuned for the research highlights, where we're looking at protected areas that aren't great at protecting animals and boosts to children's math skills. Now, though, what determines how much you walk each day? Reporter Anand Jagatia has been taking steps to find out. I'm currently walking to the station as part of my daily commute and I'm enjoying the last bit of fresh air and sunshine that I can before I have to descend into the hot stuffy bowels of the London underground. But thanks to an app which uses my smartphone's accelerometer, I can see exactly how many steps I've taken so far today. And right now I'm on 3,596, 97, 98, 99. Millions of people around the world have apps like this one recording their daily activity. And this week, scientists have analysed the data from over 700,000 of them. We we took the data collected by that app and had for over a two-year time period uh, physical activity about these individuals. That study author Jura Leskovec, a computer scientist at Stanford University. Of course, this was all anonymized, but what was nice is that we had precise measurement of their daily physical activity together with their uh, gender, age, location, and because we also have the weight, we can compute what is called uh, the body mass index, which is kind of whether the person is, is obese or not. Euro wanted to study the relationship between a country's activity and its levels of obesity. But somewhat surprisingly, if you take a country's average activity, there isn't a very strong link with its obesity. Instead, what is very important is how is activity distributed among the population. And what we found out is that the measure of inequality of how the activity is spread uh, through the population is very well associated with the amount of obesity in a given country, right? So it's not about what is the average. It is kind of about how many people are activity poor. This concept of activity inequality is a bit like the economic measure of income inequality. So what's going on here? Why is more activity inequality linked to higher levels of obesity? What we find is that it's the gender gap that causes activity inequality. So basically, in countries with low activity inequality, like Japan, China, men and women are about equally active. But in countries with big gap uh, between high activity and low activity people, so for example, Saudi Arabia or United States, There, it's actually women who, in some sense, are a vulnerable population that is getting much less active. 
what we then find is that women are more sensitive to their decrease in activity. So if you kind of decrease the activity of a man and, and a woman by the same amount, the, the fraction of obese people will increase faster in, uh, in women than in men. The study also looked at whether people's activity was influenced by the walkability of the city that they live in, which is a metric that tries to measure how easy it is to get around on foot. There is a very strong association between uh, walkability of the city and how much people in that city walk. But the interesting thing is that we see this gap in activity also over the weekends. So even over the weekends, in more walkable cities, people tend to be more active actually throughout the day. And, and we were careful to make sure that this, these results are not kind of a result of climate, so that, you know, walkable cities have nice climate, friendly to be outside. We also made sure that it's not about kind of socioeconomic status, that, you know, rich cities are walkable, but poor cities are not. So um, this, this seems to be true regardless of this kind of either climate or socioeconomic status. Now, you might be thinking, duh, obviously people will walk more in more walkable places. But having actual data on people's behaviour in the real world could enable us to design cities that are better for our health. And using activity inequality could help scientists identify which people in a population are activity poor and could benefit most from any changes. But on a more fundamental level, the study also shows how useful smartphones can be for gathering data on people's behaviour, and not just on how many steps they take. These devices are with us all the time and kind of they know us better than our doctor does. They can be used to monitor food intake, they can be used to uh, monitor exercising, uh, heart rate, to, to measure sleep. Uh, but there is also a lot of work to be done to make sure uh, that we kind of understand how are we measuring, what is this thing really measuring, how is it biased, skewed, distorted um, and so on. That was Jura Leskovec from Stanford University talking with Anand Jagatia. Check out the paper in the usual place. If there's one thing we love more than sharing all the latest science gossip, it's hearing from our listeners. Thanks to Peter Schreier, who got in touch to let us know he's been listening to the show every week for years and that our two-week hiatus was a serious cause for concern. And I'd like to take this opportunity to out self-professed closet science fan John McKee, who's been enjoying his holiday by listening to the podcast and observing insect behaviours. To get in touch with us, drop us a tweet at Nature Podcast, an email podcast at nature.com or an iTunes review. Right, now back to the science. About one in a hundred people are affected by autism, but there's still lots we don't know about the condition. A lot of what we do know is about how the disorder appears. For example, it most often becomes apparent in the second year of life, and it makes it hard for a child to socialise with others. And it's not that children don't want to engage in those relationships, but they have a great deal of difficulty navigating them and maintaining, for example, friendships. This is John Constantino, who researches social development disorders in children. It's known that autism has strong genetic links, and John is interested in getting to the bottom of them. In a paper out this week, John and collaborators have been taking a closer look at an early indicator of autism, where infants spend their time looking. I called John up to find out what's been missing from our understanding of autism so far. 
historically it's been very difficult to see the earliest signs of the autistic syndrome. So in other words, very young babies appear to look normal for a very long time over the first year to year and a half of life and that becomes impairing as that child ages into their second and third year of life. And in this study out this week, you were actually looking at something which might show signs of autism earlier in life. We capitalized on two important sort of discoveries of the last 10 or 15 years uh, in autism. The first being that it is highly genetically influenced, and the second that children's attention to the eyes and faces of others in their environment was in decline in young children at risk for autism beginning as early as two months of age. So this offered an opportunity to identify a predictor for how the condition actually occurs or arises in a child. How do you actually test where a child is looking and whether they're more or less interested in looking at other people's faces? A young child, a baby, is uh, seated in front of a screen that is showing them a uh, video of a person uh, either talking to them or a video of individuals interacting with one another. So we had a a way to uh, distill from those experiments the total proportion of time uh, oriented to eyes and faces, and then we could also then look at the actual eye movements on a tens of milliseconds time scale. So we already know that where the infants look is a strong indicator of the disorder, and we we know that autism has strong genetic roots, but in this study you were aiming to sort of put those facts together. We wanted to know to what extent do individual differences in that capacity to orient visually to social cues, how is that driven by genetic factors? So to do this, we recruited an epidemiologic sample of young twins, and twins are particularly useful for disentangling of nature and nurture because identical twins share 100% of their genetic variation, and non-identical twins only share on average half of their genetic variation. And by doing these tests with twins, with identical and non-identical twins, what do you end up finding? What we found was that those particular aspects of a child's unique uh, development were nearly identical among identical twins and very much different among non-identical twins. So the, the estimates of inheritance playing a role in individual differences among the twins was uh, over 90%. So these experiments uh, indicate that behind where a child looks and how a child engages with faces, there's this kind of genetic underpinning. What does that actually tell us? The importance of linking this particular trait to genetic factors is that if it is not influenced by genetic factors, it would be very difficult to say that that is a cause of autism because we know that autism is so heavily influenced by genes and by genetic factors. But this particular predictor has now been linked strongly to genetic factors. And so we can recognize this predictor not only as a developmental predictor, 
but as one that is linked to the genetic causes of autism, and that alone may not cause autism, but in combination with other genetic liabilities may incur liability to the condition. Does this work help us uh, with interventions that might help people with autism lead easier lives? Even if we use just the types of intervention that we already have for young children uh, with uh, autism spectrum conditions, rarely are those kinds of interventions applied earlier than 18 months of life. And so moving those interventions earlier and designing them for younger infants may give us an opportunity to have a higher level of impact on the developmental course of a child at risk for autism. That was John Constantino, who's at the Washington University School of Medicine in Missouri. It's almost time for this week's news chat, where we're looking at the lack of science staff in the White House and fake space dust. Now, though, we've got a special guest reading the research highlights. It's Adam Levy. Oh, wait, that's you. Protected areas are set up to support animal species living within them. Now, a study has found that they're often not up to scratch. It seems like areas aren't set aside because they're the best spaces to protect animals, but because they're not particularly useful for farming. In the last decade or so, three million square kilometres have been protected. The land set aside has helped protect 84 vertebrate species. Not bad. But the same area could have protected 3,500 species if it had been chosen more tactically. That paper is in Conservation Biology. Now over to Shamli Bundel. Playing games may be the best way to start a career as a mathematician. Researchers played one of two games with preschool kids, one relating to maths concepts like numbers and shapes, and the other with no maths, instead relating to social interactions. The kids that played the mathsy games ended up being better in maths tests. For example, it boosted the children's intuition about numbers, like their ability to estimate quantities. In some cases, this brain boost lasted as long as the study, a full 15 months after the games were completed. Find that paper in Science. Time now for this week's news chat, and Lauren Morello joins us from the other side of the Atlantic in Washington, D.C. Hi, Lauren. Hi, Adam. Now, first up, we have an update on the Trump administration, or rather kind of a lack of an update. What's going on in the White House regarding science? So this is about the White House Office of Science and Technology policy, which sounds like a boring thing, but is actually a really important thing. It's the office in the White House that um, is run normally by the presidential science advisor and tries to coordinate science priorities across all of the government agencies that do science. And what's unusual about Trump's Office for Science and Technology policy? OSTP, if you're a wonk. So I guess the first thing to mention is that uh, President Trump hasn't nominated a science advisor yet. And He's later than many recent presidents have been with this, but, you know, George W. Bush didn't announce who he wanted until June. So Trump is right there with the last Republican to hold the White House. But more importantly, um, Trump just hasn't filled a lot of positions in the White House Science Office. Under Obama, there were about 130 people on staff there at any given time. And Trump right now only has 35 of those jobs filled. 
But I know that Obama was actively very keen on science. And didn't he actually expand that office? For a long time, it had four divisions. And what Obama did was he created a chief technology officer and that person had his own office. So he made one extra division. But this is taking things back further than that. And it's still somewhat hard to tell whether this is just Trump being very slow filling positions, which, you know, he's been very slow filling positions across the government, or whether he doesn't intend to fill some portion of these positions at all, which is also possible because he's repeatedly said that he wants to shrink the government. Well, given that promise, is this just a part of uh, Trump's pledge to shrink the government or is what's happening with science somehow unusual? Well, it seems like science is one of the first areas where this is really visible. And some events last week have kind of shed light on what might be going on here. Four employees left the science office on Friday, and a few of them tweeted about it and revealed that there are no staff members left in the science division or the technology division of the science office, which, remember, has science and technology in its name. Um, And the White House initially denied those reports, but eventually what they said was, There are nobody in those two divisions, but we have uh, 12 people who work on science in the office. And the White House told uh, one of our reporters that they thought that under Obama, the science office was very siloed. That seems to suggest that they want to rearrange the office and that some of these unfilled positions are intentional. Given that there are so many fewer people around, how is this affecting existing, ongoing projects? There's a lot of uncertainty in the science office right now. You know, from the top down, there's an acting director, somebody who's been on staff since 2011. But people who have worked in the science office under Trump told us that it's not clear that the acting director is running things. There's a mid-level Trump appointee who is attending uh, the daily meetings of the White House senior staff, filling the spot that would normally be filled by the science advisor. Um, And in the meantime, a lot of mid and lower level staff working on various programs are just at a standstill. They're not getting clear direction. So can big projects that were kind of set up during the Obama administration be kept alive? Or is this a a real problem? It really depends on what project you're talking about. Um, President Obama started the Brain Initiative to understand the inner workings of the brain. And that is mature enough now that the three agencies that participate in that program are pretty much okay running their chunks of it and things are normal. But for the staff at the science office who work on climate change, for example, Trump's positions on climate change are radically different than Obama's and they're not really getting any direction from the Trump White House on what they want. So those people are basically twiddling their thumbs. Let's move on to our second story, which is a bit more tangible a problem. It's a problem with artificial space dirt. Now, before I looked at this story, I didn't know that artificial space dirt was even a thing. So what's it actually useful for? Space scientists and space agencies need to test things like drills and rovers before they send spacecraft and landers and rovers and drills into space. So since, you know, we really only have limited samples of rocks and soil from the moon's surface, and we don't have samples from an asteroid or from Mars, 
space agencies or companies that they do business with make fake space dirt. It's uh, more properly known as simulant. So what's the problem with this simulant? It's really hard to make. Even with fake moon dirt, you know, we don't really have that much of the real stuff. We can't replicate it perfectly. So the first decision you have to make if you're a scientist is you decide what properties of the real stuff you want to mimic. Um, and then beyond that, the demand isn't necessarily constant. So over the past few decades, you know, the companies that make this stuff have not really managed to stay in the business. How much could this actually mess up people's experiments? Our reporter talked to a team at the European Space Agency that's working on a drill. They want to hunt for buried ice on the moon and they ordered half a ton of fake moon dirt from a commercial supplier. But when that fake dirt was delivered, they found that it didn't behave the way that they wanted it to behave when they tried to drill into it. It just broke apart too easily. So, you know, that didn't really allow them to test their drill very efficiently. So those are the kinds of problems that you can run into. And how are space agencies looking to get a handle on this problem? Are they planning on fixing it in some way? So NASA has just recently started to try to address this problem. Um, they put together a team of scientists in June from among the people who work at its research centers, and they're trying to analyze the physical properties and the availability of the existing fake space dirt. And the hope is to put together a kind of catalog that tells scientists what each type of fake dirt is good for, how it's best used, and just let people know what's out there. There's more than 30 different kinds of fake moon dirt. And so it's really hard for scientists to get a handle on which fake dirt is appropriate for the experiments they want to do. I really love stories like this where there's actually this really big problem in an area that I didn't even know existed. I didn't know that this stuff existed either before our reporter brought me this idea. And then there's the bonus of, you know, being able to say that I got the phrase fake space dirt into a headline <laughs> in nature, which I will remember that for a long time. Thank you, Lauren Morello, for more on space dirt and the dirt on science in the White House. Head to the usual place, nature.com forward slash news. That's all for this week, but make sure to keep your eyes peeled for our latest nature video, all about organised tower building ants. That's at youtube.com forward slash nature video channel. I'm Shamini Bundell. And I'm Adam Levy. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 